Hi, this is Joshua David Stein. Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Pas, a.k.a. Pastel Pringle. Yeah. Hi. Yes. <laughs> a.k.a. so many other a.k.a.s. Yeah. I'm a.k.a. JDS. Yes. But I, um, I look forward to earning more nicknames. Oh, you, you're going to get many more nicknames. So this episode, it doesn't happen every episode of the podcast, but it's happened, you know, a few times. Um, our guest is a hero of mine. Wow. Yep. Her name is... So you only have a few heroes, is what you're saying. Yeah, but don't you? Uh, yeah, well, pretty much just one. Just one. Jesus. <laughs> nah, that guy? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's cool. He's cool. He's cool. He's cool. But I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call him my hero. Who's your hero? Uh, my hero would probably be Sam Cooke, but I don't, you know... Cannot be a guest on the podcast. Yeah, no, he can't. Yeah. I Who's mean, your hero who could be a guest on the podcast? My hero that could be a guest on the podcast. Let's see. Probably, um, I don't know. Maybe maybe Funkmaster Flex, actually. I'll make some phone calls. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, that guy is like, he's, he's, he's enormously influential, like, in the culture of hip-hop, but is also, like, a genuinely funny dude. Let's get him. You know? Yeah, let's, th- I would love that. I okay. would absolutely love that, you know? This anyway. episode is um not funk master flex although like the zen equivalent of it (laughs) um it's this woman named joan halifax she founded the upaya zen center in santa fe new mexico she's led an incredible life which we'll get into from working with the ethnomusicologist ellen lomax to joseph campbell to working in the prison system going to nepalese Um, refugee camps. She just wrote a book which I have found in my life very helpful called Standing at the Edge, Hmm. um, which is kind of like how to be there for other people without tumbling over into unhealthy behaviors. Um, She's not a parent, I don't think. And she doesn't write about parenthood in the book. Yeah. But I'm really curious to talk to her about what we can learn from kind of the things she sets forth, how it can apply at home. I mean, I, I would love to be able to learn those things. I think also from just like the little bit of stuff that I was able to do, uh, read about her, I was really actually very interested in her um, her views and her work with um, with the elderly and yeah. people who are dying. The palliative and, care program. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I mean, I guess mainly, mainly because like, you know, I'm now in my 40s uh, and you know, my mortality is constantly on my mind. Yeah. Constantly, you know what I mean? And and thinking about, like, how our parents are aging, uh, you know, our parents, our, our aunts and uncles and everything like that, people are passing away. And the idea of doing that with, uh, with grace and compassion and what you can do to, like, keep their lives fulfilling and also... And to be there for them. Right. And yeah. to be there for them and also have them be there for you and for your children, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. I, I just found that part really interesting let's give her a call yeah she's on mountain time the coolest of <laughs> mountain all time does that mean she's on a mountain she's like it's like she said like it's time to get on a mountain let's no, do it's this. not like island time it's oh, like, yeah. oh, okay it's like in santa fe like, okay I, i'm just like imagining her being like it's mountain time and then she puts on a pack and some tebas and like goes up just has probably happened yeah probably. welcome to the fatherly podcast i hope you enjoy the show Now we have our guest, Roshi Joan Halifax, Yes, on the phone, and we can hear her. Hi, how are you doing, Roshi? How are you, Roshi? 
This is Postel, by the way. I'm doing great. Oh, yeah. Um, I have a co-host. His name is Postel. He's sitting next to me on the couch. Where are you sitting? Okay, one. Um, I'm sitting in my office, Upaya Zen Center, you know, in the monastery where I live. Um, so I, uh, as I was telling Pas, you, you, your voice accompany me, accompanies me pretty much every morning on the subway, and I'm reading your book, uh, Standing on the Edge, and um, every morning I read your translation of the Heart Sutra that you did with uh, Kaz, uh, I think, Tanahashi. Um, right. And so you are very familiar and a presence in my life, and I'm very excited to talk to you. But I think for a lot of our listeners, who this is a podcast about fatherhood, um, might not be as familiar with your work. And I was wondering if you could just tell me, in you know, a, a little bit, uh, you know, how you how you pass your days. <laughs> well, I pass my days with uh, a lot of variety. But anyway, you know, I'm probably best known for my work in the end-of-life care field, and which I've been uh, involved with since um, uh, 1970. And um, I'm also very dedicated toward a vision of Buddhism that we call socially engaged Buddhism, um, which is an integration of contemplation or meditation in Buddhist view with social action. And so for that, uh, I think that's one of the things that keeps me very much alive and, and young and learning and um, inspired, even in a world that we're, we find ourselves caught in right now, which is a pretty fraught world, but a world that's in, it's in, in, in an interesting uh, phase. Um, in fact, the midterms terms did cheer me up. <laughs> but my days are... Yeah, and particularly as a woman, I will say. Um, but, you know, I, my typical day, actually, I don't have a typical day per se, but, um, you know, I wake up around 4 a.m. in the morning. I spend uh, a certain time doing meditation practice, um, and then uh, I'll work for a while, and then I'll do meditation practice again, have my breakfast, and then, you know, begin a day of um, interacting with people uh, around issues related to what it is to be a compassionate person in the world today. And um, uh, it could be uh, I'm teaching, or it could be I'm sitting with a mother who's lost her son, or it could be that I find myself in the Himalayas and working in the high-altitude medical clinics that um, we've been organizing for almost 40 years. And, you know, um, apropos of that, um, every day if I'm in Santa Fe, I try to walk anywhere from 3 to 10 miles, you know, as part of uh, my practice to stay healthy and uh, vital. And, you know, um, I feel very blessed with the, the life that I have because um, having a strong Buddhist practice for so many years has given me a kind of gravity um, in a world that is so complicated right now and where people need to feel that um, some of us are deeply resourced, at, at least spiritually and psychologically. And I, I feel that in my case, I've been so fortunate 
to have been uh, able to study with great teachers and also to understand that some of my greatest teachers were the dying people that I worked with. So, you know, that's a little bit about my day and days. Lovely. Uh, Roshi, I did, this is Postel again. I, d I had a question for you, which is uh, th thank you for letting us know what your day is like. Um, but I, I, after having the opportunity to uh, watch some of the um, beautiful conversations and talks that you've given, it, it left me wondering uh, how you actually came to this work and uh, to some extent even like the, the, the place and level of spirituality like, how did you come to actually Buddhism? Well, you know, I think I was very fortunate um, to have been uh, a young person in the 1960s when um, so much was happening in the social landscape around justice, and that included uh, the civil rights movement and it included the anti-war movement. So, you know, these two movements, which were very powerful, they continue to be powerful, uh, today, but uh, in the 1960s, um, it was a, an extraordinary time uh, where issues related to uh, social justice, the environment, uh, democracy, feminism, and so forth were really, um, in, you know, they were the issues that many young people of that era cared about. And I, I was young in that era. I was in my 20s. And um, in the middle of the 60s, a very remarkable uh, person came to the United States to ask us to stop uh, feeding the war in Vietnam. And I joined a huge peace march down Fifth Avenue with this person. And I was, a, you know, in the civil rights movement. And I was Who is this person? Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> and, and going down this, you know, in this big... Uh, peace march on uh, Fifth Avenue. It was really um, kind of a wake-up call because I learned about a man who um, was from Vietnam. His name was Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh. He was a young man at, that time, <laughs> at the time. And as a result of um, his vision, I became a Buddhist. I realized that I wanted to integrate my social action. Um, with contemplation, that this was the healthy thing to do. So that has, you know, that's been the rest of my life. Because this is a podcast about um, parenthood, I wonder, I was, do you have children? I don't have children, not biological children, but I think I have a lot of children in my life. Mm. <laughs> um, one of the things that I am so interested in talking to you about is obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but in Edge states, you talk about your life experience and whether it's being around uh, the dying or um, being present for suffering or bearing witness or in the um, in the Himalayas, um, which I think I now am pronouncing wrong. How do you pronounce it? Himalayas. Either way is fine. Okay. Um, I wonder if you have a thought on how some of those techniques that you talk about in the book and some of the challenges with edge states, which I'm going to ask you to um, sort of define in a sec, how those apply, if at all, to the sort of householder challenges of just raising young kids. Like I have a five and seven-year-old. Yeah, I a, have a six and two-year-old. Yeah. Um, so maybe first, if you could just talk for a second about edge states and then how that may or may not, you know, apply to 
guys like or parents like us? Well, I actually I think the edge states apply in an incredible way to parents. And you know, the edge states became visible for me not from being a parent, but from working with people who are involved with caregiving or social justice or teachers, also parents, because a lot of parents come through my interview room. And the suffering that parents experience, not just children, but that parents experience in um, trying to be, you know, a good parent, just like teachers, uh, experience something not dissimilar. And I began, you know, in talking, or not so much me talking to people, but people talking to me over uh, literally decades about what it is to bring compassion and care forward um, whether as a parent or as a teacher or the human rights worker or as a doctor or nurse, um, when the call from suffering is so strong that overwhelm can happen and complications can arise and that those who you know, want to be caring like a parent find themselves compromised internally. So I distilled from literally thousands of encounters um, with people from all walks of life and all cultures, many different cultures, I'll say all, many different cultures. These five areas that I think are really important in terms of how we maintain health um, at the same time, how we deal with real problems in the world. And I isolated uh, five different qualities that um, have powerful um, uh, valences that are positive, and valences are aspects which are in the shadow but negative and cause harm to ourselves or to others, or even the institutions that we're part of, whether it's a family institution or a hospital. And those five uh, states I call the edge states because it's important for one to actually um, stand at the edge between positive and negative valences to um, observe the whole landscape of these qualities. And the qualities are altruism, and the negative inflection of altruism is called pathological altruism, which is when we harm ourselves in the process of caring for others when we harm others in the process of our endeavor to care for others, when the institutions that we're working in or uh, that we're serving, like a nation, for example, like the UN in Haiti, for example, a well-known example, um, that our actions actually cause harm to others in our endeavors to help. So that's altruism and pathological altruism. And then uh, the next uh, area I explore in my book, Standing at the Edge, is empathy. And uh, empathy is very important in relation to our human connection or our connection with the world of creatures, with this earth. But at the same time, if our empathy is not regulated, then we can experience empathic distress and um, find ourselves... uh, uh, subject to what's called vicarious suffering. You know, we're, we're carrying um, the suffering of others. I and, think that um, empathic distress can truly disable us. I think the empathy one for me reading the book was kind of the one that really resonated strongly with two 
kids because you know they're kids and they experience suffering and again like i feel pretty self-conscious even talking about it because the examples in your book are so much more extreme than for instance my son achilles he hates going into the city because there's tall buildings and he doesn't like tall buildings and like yeah that is very like i get it it's so it's so minute but for him he's really suffering about it and I, what I find and what, you, what resonates about what you're saying is when I, I have a lot of empathy. He's my son, right? But I get so, I suffer so much for his suffering as well that it makes me unable to be there for his suffering. Yeah. I, because like as a parent, I know that I, when I feel suffering, I like hit eject. Like I have my own <laughs> like, my own fight flight re- response to suffering. So when I which I'm trying to deal with. But right. like when I allow his suffering, when I suffer too much for him, I'm, I'm not helpful for him. We'll be back with more from Roshi Joe in Halifax after a brief word from our sponsors. You talk about in your book, um, uh an acronym grace g-r-a-c-e right which you know i'm i don't know why i'm so hung up on it i really want to make clear i'm not making a moral equivalency between like what's going on in my you know like park slope <coughs> right yeah and, exactly. like the stuff that you talk about roshi but um but it doesn't mean that you can't learn from it right uh, but i yeah. still feel like that grace is is so um so helpful. Do you mind just going through G R A C E? It's been like a boon sure. for me. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, you know, <clears throat> what I did, uh, Josh, was it wasn't just uh, you know working in the medical field. As I said, parents have been a tremendous source of information for me, and have been great teachers for me. Um, because many of the people, as I say, who come through my dopasan room, my interview room. Um, uh, we're in one-on-one, one-on-one interaction. Share their experience of you know the what their kids are going through and what they're going through around what their kids are going through. So, I developed Grace as a way that we can uh, uh, cultivate compassion as we're immediately interacting with others. So the G of Grace is gathering your attention. And it's a real call to get grounded. And an easy way to do that is to just allow your attention to rest on your breath. And the R of grace is recalling your intention. So it's, you know, if you're a parent, your intention is to do whatever you can to help your kids grow up to be healthy, loving human beings. And, you know, you have to keep that out in front of you, no matter how frustrating their behaviors are to you or disappointing their behaviors are to you. So let's remember, you're there in in the heart of uh, benefiting your kids and remembering that. And then the A of grace is to attune first to yourself, attune physically, what is the body experiencing right now? Because it tells us a lot. If you're standing in front of your child and you're 
um, gut is tight and your heart is clenched and the blood is rising up your neck and you're about to, you know, break out in uh, toxic anger. Noticing what your body is experiencing is really important because you can begin to downregulate your your reactivity in relation to um, your uh, child in you know in literally a breath or two and not be carried away and uh, cause harm. So somatic uh, sensitivity, somatic tracking. Let's see what feelings are present for you. What emotions are present for you, and also what cognitions, what's what's happening, what thoughts are passing through your mind. So it's a deep self-attunement before you actually um, engage in attuning to another person, another being, and um, being in physical resonance with that person, being in affective resonance with that person, and also cognitive resonance. Then the sea of grace is considering what will really serve. So this is a kind of pause. You know, first is this kind of check-in, and then there's a pause where um, insight, intuition, also memory, past experience, where you're not just jumping to a conclusion, but you're being uh, more discerning and um, ascertaining what will really serve this person, this situation. And then the E of Grace is engaging. And then ending. Ending is really important, how we conclude our interactions with others, because sometimes it's really important to uh, express appreciation or gratitude or even ask forgiveness. So Grace is actually taught in many uh, different venues all over the world. Um, there's an international or a National Grace Association in Japan. Uh, I was just at that meeting in uh, December. Um, there are a number of institutions uh, that use grace in Europe and, and all over this country. Mostly through and, palliative uh, care or in different um, applications as well? No, no, and all, you know, just like you said, you use it as a parent. Yeah. Um, human rights workers, people not just in the end-of-life care field, but people who are, you know, I'm, I'm actually teaching it at Google and Apple and um, other uh, unusual institutions in Silicon Valley. Wow. You write about in the so book, it, it, you, I think you were writing about how you had to look at your own feet at a moment when you um, were in, I think, Nepal. And a right. dad had brought his daughter across a mountain in the su and she had burns all over her body and the suffering was so much that you found that you couldn't um, be there for that suffering without kind of gathering yourself in this. I don't know if you had developed that technique exactly. per se, but like that general principle. Exactly. No, I, I, uh, precisely. <laughs> That's when I first, you know, it's like, it, grace is very logical. Yeah. And um, it, it also reflects the uh, four foundations of mindfulness that the Buddha taught. But, um, you know, it's much more accessible to us as Westerners. Um, and also, I guess, to the Japanese, since it's used, uh, there are grace groups all over Japan. Mm. So it's one of these things where um, it was something that I developed for other people, but I end up using it a lot myself, and not just in clinical situations. 
I mean, there are times when I'm in an airport and people are blowing up and they need someone who practices grace in their midst. Yeah, grace at the TSA gate, yeah. Okay, we'll be back with more from Roshi Joan Halifax in a moment. For those of us who are seeking more grace in our life, um, and I know I'm definitely one of those people. Um, I know that I myself, like the challenge that I have uh, as a parent and also as a partner is to be able to step back and be able to see, um, be able to see like how I am reacting, how I am, um, how I am interacting and uh, forcing my thoughts or my emotions on someone and are there things that you would suggest, like like maybe walking three to ten miles a day, <laughs> um, like you know, in our everyday life, to be able to actually step back and like, are there actual tools to help us um, utilize every single letter of that acronym? So, um, you know, grace is a tool. That's one of the things that we, you know. I think this is really fantastic about grace. It is a meditation practice that you actually engage when you're interacting with others. But of course, I also think that meditation is an incredible, uh, skillful means hmm. for developing all the qualities that I'm pointing to in grace, attentional balance, emotional balance, um, motivation, uh, that are deeply based in an ethical view, um, discernment and wisdom, and also, you know, dedication to the well-being of others and, and engaging the world. Yeah, past like... Yeah, so meditation, I, you know, yeah. really is about cultivating those qualities. Okay. Yeah. So, like, we were talking right before the air about, like, my morning routine, and, you know, I meditate in the mornings before I go pick up my kids, and having a half hour um, to, I'm just sitting, and I know the thoughts are, go it's not like I'm not thinking, I'm mm -hmm. thinking, but I'm letting go of the thoughts, and it's kind of like a check, like, oh yeah, these are thoughts. Like, just starting the day realizing that you're ha recognizing thoughts for being thoughts, and not being you, hmm. then I go and I start my yeah. day, but it's kind of like a, and I have my like, I, ha I have like a little liturgy chance that I've say in the morning just starting that day with that intention and a vow for me like I know like what what is it like 11 a.m. I know I've screwed it up like maybe like you know 400 times already this morning but it does help so much especially because as a parent we were just talking about like the battles you have with a toddler in the morning to get ready for school <laughs> like if you I found that if I didn't check myself before just to like tap the mic and be like is this thing on yeah. <laughs> like um and really make a conscious effort to uh, to not be triggered, basically. Just to yeah. realize myself before uh -huh. I walked into that situation. Yeah. It, that's helped me so much. The other thing, uh, Roshi, <laughs> is you are part of the Zen uh, is it Zen Peacemakers organization, so, right? And you um, have a three part. <laughs> 
in Buddhism, generally, I feel like there's a lot of like parts. There's like four of this and three of this and nineteen of this, and there's a lot of numbers. But <laughs> you had like a a, th- a very simple like three step approach to being in difficult situations with um with suffering and with loved ones um that that i think bernie glassman developed do you mind going through those three i, I think it might sure. also help you pass. Oh. yeah i would love help well that's <laughs> great well that you know um bernie and his uh, late wife jishu just a wonder- wonderful person jishu was and of course bernie just died in november which is a huge loss for us in fact i'm going to his memorial um, I'm leaving tomorrow for New York and going to his memorial on Sunday. So just for our listeners, Bernie Glassman case, was was one of the, I guess, most prominent American Zen teachers. Yeah. Yeah. And a wonderful human being and very unique, you know, a real, uh, an original, a true original. <laughs> but um, in any case, Bernie and Tishu um, shared with me what um, the base of uh, the Zen Peacemaker Order, the kind of guiding principles. They were called the three tenets. And the first is not knowing, which is, you know, very aggravating for Western people because we are so, uh, our identities are so bound up with um, the power we get from being uh, able to access so much knowledge. Yeah, and, and we have Google. Beginner's yeah. mind. Yeah, this, <laughs> which, you know, my good friend Bill DeBreeze calls Wonder Killer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, not knowing is the first of the three tenets. So, not knowing is really important to be open to and curious to yeah. um, whatever's arising, even if it's really difficult, it's there to teach us. But not knowing is very important. Um, and then bearing witness, which is this capacity to uh, um, be present for whatever is arising um, and to uh, um, include both the joy and the suffering into whatever our subjectivity, and I'm talking about subjectivity not in the small sense, but you know, in the vaster sense, to whatever is present to bear witness, to not separate from. And then the third tenet is compassionate or loving action. This is, this is the response that we make in the world in terms of skillful means uh, to alleviate suffering. So it's not knowing, bearing witness, and, and healing or loving action or compassionate action. And I can say as somebody who has worked in, you know, the prison system for six years as a volunteer or works with dying people for almost 50 years or, you know, I've lived in spiritual communities since the late 70s and, um, you know, having the three tenets as a, a kind of ballast in my psyche, every time my knowing comes forward, I go, ah, yeah, practice not knowing right now, Roshi. I think it's mm. it's Just be um, open to whatever's arising. Learn from it. Don't separate from it. I think as parents, it's a hard. Um, I'm sure it's hard for everyone, but it's all it's a particular challenge because you feel like you should know because you're you are the adult and you're supposed to know. Yeah, it's your job what, to know. It's your almost. job to yeah. know. Yeah, but I also find that with my I guess it's always with my older son. Although my younger son 
is also great and I love them both equally and they're wonderful. But like with my older son, I find myself really struggling because I don't know how to really, I really don't know how to help him when he's having an anxiety, you know, he's going through a lot of anxiety or having a tantrum. I do know though, after read, honestly, after reading this book that, um, the less I try to just enforce what I think I know will make him feel better or what I think I know or, um, and the more I'm just there with him while he's crying and I'm saying like, I, I, you know, I see you're upset and I'm, I'm sorry. And, you know, and acknowledging it, just acknowledging yeah. it. And I'm not trying to fix it because I don't know how to fix it. And I know that every time I tried to fix it with what I thought was like the right thing, yeah. it just made it worse. Cause I right. was inevitably like laying my trip on him about wiping his ass or like going into the city or right. getting dressed or whatever. Oh, well. That's great. That's just great. <laughs> yeah, it well, has You been. must be a pretty good parent. <laughs> well, thanks to you, I'm getting a, well, a little bit better. Um, yeah. Well, I think, think that this is, you know, a wonderful example of not knowing. Yeah. And, you know, I was reminded of, um, and I have this these words in the book, the, um, my good friend who's a physician, Rachel Naomi Remen, um, she said, you know, um, Helping, fixing, and serving represent three different ways of seeing life. When you help, you see life as weak. When you fix, you see life as broken. But when you serve, you see life as whole. Hmm. So, you know, the question is, you know, how do you serve that situation with Hmm. your son, for example? And maybe he knows best. Yeah. I feel like uh, I'm now jazzed to go out and like tackle parenthood, you know? Yeah, no, I, um, we, we were having this conversation about, um, like uh, JDS said, a conversation about the struggles of, particularly in the mornings with our kids, arming them, uh, if, if that might not even be the correct word, but almost like um, getting them I ready. Would, f- I, I'd find another word. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. But, but you know what, but I guess right. that's, that's, that's a... A reflection of... Yeah, a, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I guess that's a reflection that uh, that I have myself in terms of, sending them out and and i think also um some of that is also connected to being a black parent and growing up in the black community and feeling like my parents sent me out into the world feeling like they had to arm me with a particular type of mindset and a particular type of protection for myself and for our family and i think that i'm carrying that over into uh into the life of my children even if i should look at it from a different lens but um but i i guess when i when i prepare them for the day there is a frustration that i face with um (laughs) <laughs> with feeling like we're feeling like they need to be prepared in this particular way and when they push back against that um my pushback against them leads us to a leads us to an impasse and uh and I think uh like you said I need to uh, I need to basically use grace and think about serving I think uh I, I mean I'm really actually that that in itself is something that the idea of serving, being in service to people is something that I need more in my own personal life and particularly with my family. Well, yes. <laughs> that is wonderful. It's so great hearing a dad talk like this, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, but I, actually, it, I think it's I'm struggle. hearing more and more dads talk like this. But I, I really, and this is, you know, I'm not trying to 
um, market my book, but I really feel that this book that I've written, Standing at the Edge, for parents is um, a tremendous resource. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, can I, I, I don't want, I have two questions about limited time, but I am very curious about both. One, how, if at all, has um, your work with the dying, um, like, have you, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but what have you learned from that that you think relates to, relates to parenting? Because I know that's such a big part of your work. And I would hate to let the opportunity pass to not ask you, like, if there's any application um, or just sense you have from that that could apply to, you know, Paz and I are also, I mean, we're all dying. Yeah. <laughs> Born to die. Born to die. Well, I think, you know, I think one of the things that I've really uh, um, learned, <laughs> I say I've really learned, maybe I haven't learned it enough, but it is um, a kind of... Uh, realization of the truth of impermanence. Everything is characterized by change. Mm. And um, as a result of looking at one's own life or the life of our loved ones, our kids, for example, and realizing, you know, we don't know. Um, we could die in uh, the next day. Our child, like the children who uh, have met their deaths by gun violence, um, we don't know uh, how long our lives will last. And so it gives a, a, a sense to how important our priorities are. And I, I feel that the, um, uh, pri the priority of utmost importance um, is related to our relationships, how we are with our children, our spouses, our friends, our communities, those whom we serve. And to also understand um, uh, that our relationships are happening uh, within a, a context that is the natural world, which, of course, is in a state of uh, high vulnerability, high fragility right now. I mean, the natural world will continue, but will our civilization continue? So it's like part of working with dying people has taught me the importance of living a principled life. And I think that, you know, part of being a parent is what we're trying to actualize and to transmit to our kids. Certainly what I try to transmit to my students is related to what it is to be a person of integrity, a person who cares not just about themselves but about, you know, all beings and things. So being dying has been, and I write about it in my book, a previous book, being it's called Being with Dying. Um you know, uh, it's, being with dying is not just for dying people or caregivers. It's a kind of uh, guidebook for all of us of what it means to live a life that is characterized by fearlessness and compassion. And uh, my greatest teachers, in fact, have been dying people. Hmm. Um, so, you know, what have I learned? I've learned about impermanence and priorities and the importance of relationship and uh, integrity. Okay, last question. Something that um, I think a lot of people s struggle with, I struggle with, you talk about in the book, is if you could briefly outline the differences between empathy and compassion, mm -hmm. that would be helpful. That has been yeah. something that I've struggled with, not only in my like uh, personal relationship with my, with my ex-wife, but with my kids as well. 
is I think I've grown up confused about the difference. I don't even think it's a distinction people make much, but it's a huge distinction with far-reaching implications. Well, you have to go back and read the book because I do make the distinction there. But yeah. um, just to just to uh, help our listeners a little bit and to remind you know myself, um, you know, empathy is the experience of resonance with another. So it would be, uh, for example. Uh, emotional resonance, where I, I'm, you know, if a person's grieving and I kind of feel they're grieving, or uh, perspective taking, I, I, I can sort of look out through their eyes or increase my subjectivity to include whatever their experience is, or empathy at the somatic level. So it's an experience of resonance, but how uh, a number of neuroscientists and social psychologists, but not all. Um, but they uh, make a distinction between empathy and compassion because empathy is much more at the level of resonance um, where compassion uh, entails the aspiration to actually transform the suffering of another. And empathy doesn't necessarily uh, entail that dimension. So what's really critical about compassion is the uh, motivation or the intention to uh, encounter the suffering of another, to be in resonance with it, and but also to have this deep aspiration to uh, see that suffering ended or to transform that suffering directly. Is it important to have some sort of distance from the suff- from the empathy, or is that like if my son is suffering and I'm suffering just as much as my son, I have a hard time being there. For him, is it important to have some sort of? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what I. I mean, absolutely, and and this is a another point I make in the book: this distinction between self and other being really important. That if we're over-identified, if you're over-identified with your suffering son, son suffering, you're just compounding it. You're making it worse. And so, you know, there's a kind of a metacognitive perspective or sort of standing aside internally where you could say, you know, I'm really feeling my son suffering to the extent that that can be a reality. Um, I can't ever know really what another person's feeling. But also, I'm not my son. I'm a, I'm a grown-up dad. And I have a lot of experience. And I know that, you know, my son's, for example, fear of tall buildings um, isn't necessarily uh, realistic, but for him it's true right now. Roshi Joan, yeah, uh, I'm so excited and grateful and um, and jazzed to be able to have uh, talked with you. Thanks for making the time this morning. And, um, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for your work. You know, and actually, I have just one final, uh, yeah. like, little telling question. Uh, I I I did uh, hear you discuss how compassion. Um, is good for uh, immunity for the immune system. Uh, is that true? <laughs> no, she's yeah. making it up. Yeah. It is true. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, like, um, absolutely. You know, if you read the section, the science section on compassion, it's uh-huh. like, wow, people ought to get behind this program. Yeah, for real. This is a wellness program. <laughs> if you call it wellness, yeah. it'll sell like hotcakes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. a cleanse. Maybe yeah. we can make it. Compassion is a wellness. Well, that's how I see it. Yeah. Yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll start building like yeah. gyms in New York, compassion gyms. They, they have that. Well, right? um, that's what. 
you know, these little meditation yeah. centers all over New York, they're compassion gyms. Uh, there you go. But also compassion gyms are the homeless shelters. You should, yes. you know, just encourage people to go out into their community to the places that are most vulnerable and where people are unsheltered. It could be, you know, unsheltered emotionally or unsheltered physically. And um, see what, what one can do to serve. And, you know, bring your kids into that process. I mean, I'm reading about more and more young people who are, you know, addressing issues related to climate change, and really out there is prophetic voices mm. addressing issues in, in relation to uh, political violence, and these kids are out there as prophetic voices. That's great. Gun violence. These kids are out there as prophetic voices. They're going to change the social contour and the psychological contours of our country. Hmm. Well, they really have skin in the game. Yeah, true, true indeed. They do. Anyway, you guys have been great, and thank you, and come to Upaya Zen Center sometime, and I'm so grateful you read my book. It's wonderful. <laughs> thank you. you for writing it. Thank, thank you, Roshi Jones. Thank you so much. So I think the thing about talking with people like Roshi Joan Halifax or even like listening to the Dharma talks that I listen to or read or whatever, um, even like uh, refrigerator magnets or like posters with kittens on branches, like all of the things people say and that are written are only as useful as the amount of weight you put into them. You know, it's like... Hmm. What do you um, mean? What do you mean? So, okay, so three of the three tenets, not knowing bearing witness and compassionate action. Like, mm -hmm. I think we can all agree that that's probably the right way to go about things. Mm. Um, but unless you really apply them and work at them and, like, do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, it, it actually engage. At that, yeah, re yeah. If you don't engage, it just rests at a conceptual level. Yeah. Um, I don't think anything Roshi Jones said anyone can really disagree with. No. But it's about putting it into action, and that's the hard part. Yeah, well, the, there's, yeah there, there's a level of work that has to be done, and it's very easy. I mean, I think, even for myself, like it's very easy to fall back on uh, on the modern comforts that, that, that I have, that I complain about. Or, um, or your like, green patterns. I mean, I think right, that's Yeah, absolutely. Thing. Absolutely. It's very easy to like fall back on, on, on those laurels, but it's important to actually do that work to be constantly engaging to be uh i mean i think i have a few friends who meditate i never have done meditation um per se when i grew up as a christian very devout uh i am no longer that but i i for years i used to pray every every morning somewhere th sometimes throughout the day and definitely in the evenings and uh, somewhere in the, along that line, like that practice um, got skewed for me. So I stopped praying. But I will say that that level, like I want to actually probably talk to you about meditation, because I think that there's something that I can gain from that um, to be more cognizant every day and put those things into, you know, relax my mind, put those things into practice, actually well, the, do yeah. that work, you know. Well, for sure the first step of any of these techniques is like realizing what you're doing like if you don't even know that you think you know then practicing not knowing is yeah. a non-starter you yeah. know what i mean yeah 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 absolutely. like you have to be cognizant that oh i'm i'm trying to force this viewpoint uh -huh. and it took me a very long time to understand that i was trying i didn't even know i had a viewpoint you know i was so in it yeah um i think that i 
I have like a wealth of mental health acronyms that I'm supposed to live by. Yeah. You know, like I did this other therapy called dialectical behavioral therapy, and it's just like a handbook full of crazy long acronyms. Okay. Um, and when I'm in like a difficult situation, I have a really hard time going back and being like, oh, well, what does dream on or like stop man or whatever please man like what do all these things stand for uh -huh. uh, but grace has been very helpful for me if only because it makes me pause for a moment and think like what do those letters stand for yeah <laughs> so, like, it gives me a break <laughs> to like recalibrate and then that that three-part zen peacemakers organization um not knowing bearing witness uh compassionate action has helped me Honestly, every morning when I'm tangling with Achilles or Augie about, you know, getting their hand through that sleeve. And you know how, like, some jackets have that felt part? Between oh, them? yeah. And, like, they always fuck that up. That we tricky in, felt part. Yeah, yeah, we always get in fights about it. It's like, yeah. okay, well, take a step back. Think about it. Realize that you can't just force it. Yeah. Yeah, which, from there. which, I mean, to, to that end, to, like, you can't just force it. I think, I, you know, probably one of the biggest takeaways I will have from our conversation with her is the difference between helping, fixing, and serving. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that I, I would actually say that I predominantly help and fix. Predominantly. Um, <clears throat> I, you mean as opposed to serve? Yeah, as opposed yeah. to serving. Actually, as opposed to serving. Um, and a lot of that is really for me being cognizant. I think I'd like to think at the heart of it, I want to serve, but I think most of the time I am enforcing my own will yeah. uh, or what I think should be. Um, and that comes out in the form of helping and fixing um, as opposed to actually like listening and, 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 and observing and acknowledging what somebody else is going through. And then how can I actually like, how can I, I can be there for that? How can you process. serve the situation? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Poss, uh, that was fun. I feel yeah, a little bit more awesome. that enlightened. Was that was actually amazing. <laughs> we actually, like, that was kind of, you know, I, I I think of myself as somewhat of a spiritual person, but, you know, I, I've, I've, I've fallen from grace per se, particularly because I'm no longer religious. I consider myself an agnostic. Yeah. Um, uh, and so it's hard to necessarily, like, access, a, have a point of entry sometimes for my own spirituality. But that was, like, to me, that was, uh, that was, that was as close to an everyday sort of uh, 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 spiritual conversation that, that, that one could have. That was actually, like, outstanding. That well, was amazing. I, you know what I mean? Good. I'm yeah, glad. Yeah. Oh, the, oh, the things that JDS will bring you on a podcast day. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Poss. That's yeah, Pastel Pringle. Our uh, producer is a guy named Anthony Roman. He's right here. Hey, Anthony. Uh, I'm Joshua Davidson. I think I also produced this. Anthony, yeah. Our executive producer is Andrew Berman. Um, our engineer is Dico Shatorma from Atlantic Sound Studios. Right? It's in a new building. It's very nice. Lots of guitars. It is everywhere. very. I love it. Um, and it's uh, got oh, yeah, a Leslie sure. in here. Yeah, and yeah. if you know that, Le yeah, that Leslie amp. Yes, man. We're gonna yeah, jam after this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If possible, we have it until like noon, I think. Oh. Uh, if you like the podcast, uh, rate it, review it. If you don't like it, don't rate it, don't review it. Subscribe on the iHeart uh, app or wherever you get your podcasts, and uh, we'll see you next week. 